welcome to smart cherry's thoughts this is sai from india Thank you Amanda for uh, coming to my show. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So, I wonder your profile. I came to know that uh, yeah, you're a PhD student and you're into psychology and I also see uh, you did masters in different subjects. So, I thought to tell about uh, the work that you are doing uh, and your experience to my audience. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want me to just like share a little bit about my work? Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, um like you said, I am currently a PhD student in counseling psychology. Um I am going into my third year, so making my way there. It's a 5-year program. Um and I also have a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. Uh that was a requirement for me to get the PhD. You have to have the master's first. Um so that's what I did. And my my background is in teaching special education um that's what kind of pushed me to get into the counseling field and so now i'm in school and working on finishing my degree and um i do classes and research i'm on a couple of different research teams doing research in different areas and then i also um do internships each year in different settings um so this coming year i'm going to be in an outpatient clinic at one of our local hospitals here in massachusetts uh what is clinical psychology uh what is what did you say sorry yeah uh, about uh, before that uh, uh, i want to know about the phd uh, topic that you took uh, counseling psychology what is it Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um so basically counseling psychology um it's the field that field in particular it's really focused on um developing a therapeutic relationship and helping clients in a really holistic way in their lives and so trying to figure out, you know, what's going on for them um in terms of not only like their relationships and their daily interactions and things that have happened to them but also like how well are they taking care of themselves um like nutrition wise sleep wise exercise all of those things um and with the phd i have the opportunity like in addition to doing clinical work to do research related work um so a couple teams that i'm on i'm on one team that focuses on developing resources for schools in massachusetts for children um children's behavioral health trying to get more resources into the schools to make them a little bit more trauma informed uh, and spread more knowledge about that and the other team i'm on does research into um suicide and what leads to suicide and how we can prevent it um so i've had some really great opportunities to do research across different areas which has been really cool uh, so tell me about your uh, master's subject 
Yeah, um, so my master's degree is in clinical mental health counseling um, in that program. So you can work um, here as a therapist with a master's or a doctorate degree. Um, it just kind of depends on what you want to do. And so the master's degree kind of it showed me that I really enjoyed the clinical work and I, I found I had a lot more to learn. Uh, I still had like so many questions and things that I wanted to figure out. And so that kind of is what pushed me to, to keep going in school. Um, but yeah, so that program was really focused on like your basic counseling skills, um, how to work with individuals who have experienced trauma, um, how to do group therapy, uh, all that kind of stuff. It was a really, really great program, and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, before this, uh, you are into special education. What is that? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I started out my career as a special education teacher. So that's for students who are dealing with various disabilities, um, either physical or mental. Um, and I mostly worked with students who were classified under this umbrella called emotional and behavioral disorders, which I kind of hate that term, um, but that's what it's called. And so those are students that have a really hard time regulating their emotions um, because of different things that they've been through in life. They may have experienced a trauma or they may have um, neurologically something with their brain that makes it really challenging for them to kind of manage their emotions and regulate themselves when overwhelming things happen. And so I really loved teaching. It's what I thought that I always wanted to do and I really enjoyed it. I just realized when I was in it that I really was pulled to help more so with the mental health aspect of things rather than the academic side. Um, it just really shifted that for me in the way that I wanted to work with um, children and adolescents. And so now I primarily do therapy work in a hospital setting with um, children. That's awesome. Before uh, talking about, uh, before talking more about it, uh, I just wanted to say that uh, the light is falling on your uh, uh, on your eyes. Is that okay? Oh, to appear yeah. like I can see if I can fix it. This has always happened this time of day. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, is that any better? Um, this is good. Okay. All right. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, special education and uh, clinical psychology and now uh, counseling psychology. So, how is this? Studying different subjects what you have learned, what you have understood? Yeah, um, so I would say that there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of different subject areas within psychology. Um, and there's so much sometimes that it feels almost overwhelming. Um, but I would say for me, the biggest learning curves have been related to, um, I've had to take some courses in statistics um, to understand the research and really know what I'm reading. Um, and math has always been hard for me. So that's been a bit of a challenge, um, but I've learned a lot in doing that. Um, so I've taken a lot of math related courses and I've also, um, taking courses in cognitive assessment. So those are like official um, tests that we give to people to kind of determine like what's going on for them. Um, it can tell you things like about your personality and about strengths and weaknesses that you have in your brain. Um, so I've learned how to do that. And then the other courses we take are 
um, I've done like health psychology, which is related to like how like what you eat and your world, the world that we live in, how systemic issues affect us. Um, and mostly the other things that we do are related to our internship experiences. So we have courses where we come together and we talk about the clients that we currently have and the cases that we're working on. And we get feedback from our professors and from our peers because um, everyone has a different style. Everyone has different knowledge and approaches. And so, you, you know, sometimes talking with other people helps you to see things that you might not have seen on your own. So how uh, your uh, master's degree is helping you to do your uh, PhD study? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Yeah, it gave me a really good basis um, for what I was going to do in the PhD because that's where I really learned some of like the core counseling skills that I was mentioning. So just like really how to sit with someone who is struggling and like how to talk to them and be supportive and what to say and then different um, therapeutic techniques that they can implement, like the tools that they need in therapy um, that might help them to make progress or grow in different ways. So I learned all about those tools um, and it really also taught me a lot about myself, I think. Um, like I, through that program, also learned more and more about mental health and how to support my own mental health. And I'm a big believer, like you can't really support and help other people unless you help yourself and make sure that you are in a good place. Um, so that program really gave me a very solid foundation um, for the PhD work. And so now I kind of have this like base of knowledge that I can keep building upon um, each year. So how much you uh, did research for uh, counseling psychology till now? How much, what did you say? How much uh, research that you did? Oh yeah, um, so research is a big part of the, the program. Um, basically, so the program's five years long and in the first couple of years, it's really research heavy um, because you, you don't know a lot about it yet. And so they wanna give you a lot of different experience with it and working with different types of research. Um, so the two main kinds that we work with are quantitative research, which is very much like numbers based and um, you're collecting data and analyzing it statistically. And then qualitative research, which is usually more like interview based and pulling things from conversations that you have with people or observations that you've made. And so in my first couple of years, I've had opportunities to do to do both things. Um, and I really enjoy the qualitative stuff, which is similar to what you do kind of with interviewing and getting information from people, um, connecting with people in that way has been really cool and enjoyable. Um, and like I mentioned, I'm on a couple different teams. So it's whatever studies the professors in my program have going on, students can join if they have interest in them. And so it's really just figuring out like, okay, what am I interested in? What do I wanna learn more about? And then in the later years of program, you start to do your own research. Um, and that's to put out a dissertation at the end of your program, which is, 
a really long paper about a study that you've run and everything that you have learned from that. And so I'm hoping I'm starting my dissertation process now um, and I'm planning to do it on parents experiences of having a child that has chronic mental health issues and is chronically like suicidal in and out of the hospital. Um, and I just want to interview parents about their experiences and like what's what's hard about that, like where could they use more support so that we can improve the field and support them better. So when uh, this psychology world is, uh, psychology word is invented. When was the world of psychology invented? Uh, yeah. yeah. When this word came uh, to the existence. Yeah, um, so I think it was like the the 1800s, um, Sigmund Freud, I don't know if you've heard of him or his work, um, but he's kind of known as like the founder of psychoanalysis, and he was kind of the first person to really address a lot of the things in mental health that we still we still use today. Um, a lot of his ideas have been expanded upon and have formed the basis for many of the therapies that we have today. Um, so it's it's really cool to see it, how it's grown over time. And the thing about psychology, though, is it's not really like a hard science. It's ever changing. And like we're learning new things year after year. And so the way that we do things changes very rapidly. Um, so it's it's just like a constantly evolving field, which can make it really exciting. So what you understood today that he didn't understood? What am I interested in? What was that? Uh, what you understood today in your PhD study that he didn't understood in 1800? Sorry, I didn't catch the last part of that. What I learned in my PhD study that uh, what you understood uh, today uh, in psychology that uh, he didn't understood in. Oh, good. Yeah, that's a good question. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yes. Um, so uh, if I think back to Freud, he he just had some examples um, like gender wise that were really divisive. Um, so ideas that like, you know, um, if you. He had like the like the Oedipus complex, which was like a child would be um, jealous that their mom um, had a relationship with their dad. And like that was the child would get angry because they wanted, you know, to have the dad's love and attention. Um, and he wasn't wrong. Like there we have learned a lot about attachment and how our early childhood attachment forms our attachment style for the rest of our life. Um, but just some of his ideas, they've really been expanded upon to be more inclusive of people from all genders and all backgrounds um, and not be so like putting people in boxes or to say like, this is definitely what's going on. Um, so we've definitely just shifted things a bit to, to make it more inclusive. What you don't understand about psychology? Oh, that's a good, a really good question. I would say for me, the thing I don't understand would be, I think the the idea that we we function within these systems. Um, and so uh, it's really challenging sometimes because 
I have clients come to me that really need help and support, but we don't always have the resources and systems in place to help them. Um, like right now in the U.S., we have kind of a mental health crisis going on where kids are, you know, in the emergency rooms, like in stretchers in the hallway waiting to get a bed in a psychiatric unit or waiting to get mental health support. And there's just not enough funding in our field. There's not enough people, um, not enough resources. And so we can't we can't serve everyone. Um, and so for me, that's what I don't understand, because it gets really discouraging at times when you want to help people. But sometimes there's not the right resources to get them the kind of help they need. Um, and so that can feel really frustrating because you get into this field because you want to help people. And so when you can't do it because of systemic barriers that are stopping you from doing it, it just it can feel really disheartening at times. So I've kind of learned to work within those systems to support people in the best ways that I can. But that's something that I've I've not been able to really understand about the field and that I hope changes in our lifetime. Uh, tell me about uh, the abnormal experiences of yours in the study. Uh, which experiences? Uh, abnormal experiences. Oh, like um, with like in sessions or in my learning. In your study that uh, that you felt shocked. Mm. Oh, okay, that's a really good question. Um. So I've actually recently been le learning a lot about the impact that what we eat has on our brains, which I never knew. Um, so one of the neurotransmitters in your brain that for a long time we've thought it's responsible for depression and anxiety and some of the more common mental health disorders that are out there. Um, we've recently discovered that actually about 90% of your serotonin is produced in your, in your gut, not in your brain. Um, and so what you eat and also your stress levels, which can impact your gut and how it functions, can then in turn impact your brain. Um, which I never knew before. And I thought that was so crazy to think about um, that you can kind of get stuck in this cycle because, you know, you are stressed and then your stomach doesn't feel good because you're really stressed. And then that tells your brain that something's wrong because the serotonin levels in your stomach are messed up. Um, and then your brain also thinks something is wrong. So it's just this like cycle that keeps going around. Um, and I find that really interesting. And I think we're going to see a lot of research come out in the coming years related to gut health and nutrition and how physical health and mental health are super interconnected, which we haven't really, especially in the Western world, we have not acknowledged that before um, for a very long time. Yeah. Do you think that there is a, uh, another subject other than physics, biology, and chemistry in order to understand psychology? Another subject to help you understand it? Uh, do you think that there is another subject that which they didn't invent it that is, uh, uh, that is important to understand for us uh, in order to uh, understand the psychology other than physics, chemistry, and biology? That's a good question. Um, I don't think so. I would say, honestly, 
I'm a big reader um, and I always loved like English class growing up and reading and things like that. And primarily like psychology is a ton of reading and writing because um, that's like we don't really have exams or things um, the way some other programs do. It's much more like reading research and then integrating that research into new understandings. And so it involves a lot of reading and writing. And so I think, you know, my abilities to read like I can read pretty quickly because I always like love to read when I was growing up it's different with textbooks like sometimes I'm like ugh, like you know it takes a little bit longer but I think having that ability to like read and summarize something quickly and understand the knowledge that can serve you really well so what is the abnormal incident that you faced or, or a person yeah. Um, I would say for me, I think in terms of like an abnormal incense, inc incidents, <laughs> can't talk today. Um, I think for me, it really was when I started doing work um, in the hospital, I was working a lot, like I was working primarily with the children, like they were my primary patient. Um, but when you work with kids because they're underage, you're also working with their whole family. And so for me, some instances that came up that were really challenging were sometimes, you know, I'm hearing one thing from my patient who is like, let's say like 13 years old, and they're telling me about things going on in the home or things in their life. And so it gives me kind of like a skewed perspective because I'm only getting their point of view. And then you hear from their parents or caregivers from their perspective, kind of what's been going on. And um, it can be really challenging to like integrate everybody together and help them all understand the problem in the same way. And also sometimes like, you know, all therapists are only human and we're taught to kind of, you know, be this blank slate and just take things as they come. But I think that, you know, as a human, that's hard to do sometimes. And there are times that come up where like, I really strongly like don't agree with something that's happening in a family situation, or it differs from my values a lot. But that doesn't matter because what matters is the patient and what they need. And so I've had to really learn how to hold my own values strong, but not let them impact my interactions with clients or, you know, how how our work goes together and to respect their values and what they need, even if in my mind and in my training, I don't think it's the best. I still have to go with like what that person wants and needs and support them in doing that, if that makes sense. Who are your favorite experts? My favorite what? Your favorite experts in psychology. Um my favorites favorite subjects or favorite books which one did you say uh, favorite experts okay. um i would say i'm really interested in the um like i'm interested in childhood trauma and how that impacts somebody across their entire lifespan 
Um, and so a couple years back, there was a study done in the United States called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it basically surveyed people all across the nation and asked them how many of them had experienced these certain instances in their lives. And the thing, it was like, you know, divorce, um, domestic violence in the home, uh, community violence, uh, neglect, abuse, things like that. And the study found that people with more of those adverse childhood experiences, they call them ACEs for short, um, people who have more of those have poorer health outcomes later in life. Um, so their physical health actually suffers. They have higher incidences of like heart disease, cancer, diabetes. Um, and so it can really have a huge impact on you. And the thing is, like, as a child, you're not always aware of what's happened to you. And so you can go about your life as an adult and not really realize how much something that happened when you were younger is impacting you today. Um, and how much that could impact your health if you don't do something about it to fix it. And so I'm really interested in that and how we can support people while they're still really young, like while they're adolescents and young adults, to do the work and work through those problems and learn the skills that they need to be healthy adults and lead healthy adult lives. Uh, why do kids uh, get attracted to different things and uh... Uh, develops interest and uh, uh, settles in different industries. So why do kids develop like different interests in different things? And is that what you yeah, said? Why, why, why they get uh, uh, interest on different things? Why uh, uh, people have interest on different uh, industries? Oh, yeah. Um, so people's interests develop based on, like I said, their, their childhood experiences and then also their experiences throughout their lifetime. Um, and in psychology, we do some different testing to kind of get a feel for people's personality and like what their strengths and weaknesses are. And so um, some of the tests that we have can tell you like if you're stronger in like math, for example, rather than writing, or if you're really strong at like comprehending language, or if you struggle to comprehend it. And so those are all things that can um, influence our character traits. And so, for example, someone who really struggles to like comprehend language and it's hard for them to communicate, it's going to be really hard for them to be in a field where that's like the primary thing that they have to do. So they might drift more toward more towards fields where they can work independently and they don't have to have as much interaction and things like that. Um, and then I also think life experience can really influence it. And so like I know a lot of people in the psychology world were tremendously helped by going to therapy themselves. Um, and that's what kind of like pushed them to also want to learn more about it and develop that interest. So I think it's really like a combination of the way that we are raised and kind of what we figure out we're good at and what we struggle with, and then what our comfort levels are later in life in what aligns with our purpose. Do you have a client with multiple uh, personality disorder? 
Uh, that's a good question. I have not directly worked with anybody um, with multiple personality disorder, but I find it quite fascinating. Um, and I think that I think that's another um, disorder which we don't know a lot about still, and we're still developing research to understand it better. Um, there's actually been cases where you know people have been tested and like in one personality will test um, and they'll have autism or something like that. And then their other personality doesn't, doesn't have it, which I think is so wild. Um, and I would love to know more about what is happening with that. But yeah, we don't, we don't have a ton of research on it yet, but I'd be excited to see in the coming years what we learn about that. So what is socially accepted uh, psychology? Socially accepted? Socially. Yeah, so um, I think that we are making a lot of progress in the world in terms of mental health becoming more and more acceptable to, to talk about. Um, I think like, like when I was a kid, for example, it was like super frowned upon to, you know, talk about your emotions and um, share mental health things and you know, I didn't really know anyone that was in therapy or that was doing that type of thing. And I think now um, I see it in my friends and my family, like not just at work, but in the world, more and more people feeling a lot more comfortable talking about it and really understanding that it is a component of your overall health, um, that everybody has it, every single person. And um, just because someone might not have struggled with an issue um, doesn't mean that at some point in their life they won't struggle or that they won't know somebody who does and so really understanding like how we can best support our mental health and make it more and more acceptable socially for people to talk about and share about and have it not be so stigmatized um, i think we're getting there like i think it's getting better but i think that we still have a long ways to go. Uh, what is order and what is disorder? Um, um, so basically in the mental health world, we have this manual called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, or the DSM for short. And so in there we have a lot of things listed as disorders. Um, however, it, like I said, our field's ever-changing and we're always learning new things. And so the DSM is constantly being updated and things in the past that were considered a disorder no longer are um, because they shouldn't really have been considered a disorder in the first place. And so uh, I think that disorder basically just means that, you know, you're not able to live to your full potential. You're not living your best life. Um, but I think we have to be very careful of the the labels that we put on people and um, talking about what some of the disorders are because it's not all of a person. Um, it's just something that they they struggle with. And so I I really try with my the people that I work with to to not um, put a label on them that I think will be detrimental or will hold them back. Because sometimes when people hear a certain word or get a certain label, they then associate with that way more. 
Um, and so really it's about moving to a place where they can just live optimally and function as their best self. What is what is the difference between uh, the psychology uh, uh, between uh, social animals and uh, wild animals? Oh, that's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, I would love to know more about that. I think that that is also something we'll be learning more about because animal assistance therapy is becoming more and more popular. Um, I have uh, several friends that work um, on farms like with horses and sheep and goats and cats and cows and all all those animals and they are wonderful um, additions to therapy because they can really calm people down and help people feel safe and to have a connection with an animal can be really special. Um, but yeah, I don't. I wonder. I'd be really curious to know more about that. The difference. That's a great question. So, what is the connection between uh, human psychology and nature? Yeah. So, I think that people in our field will probably have different opinions on this. I, like I said, I'm pretty um, like holistically based. So I like to really look at the whole person and the systems that they are living in. And I also um, am really passionate about yoga. I'm working on my certification in yoga. And I think that yoga and psychology are actually really heavily intertwined. And much of yoga is about our connection to like nature and the earth. Um, and to other people and um, a higher power if you believe in something like that. And so I think that psychology is starting to kind of make those connections as well. And we have learned like time outside in nature has actually been shown to decrease depression, it decreases anxiety, um, it boosts positive moods. Um, even if you can get outside for just like a couple minutes each morning to get like vitamin D from the sun, um, that can really like wake up your whole system and get you going. Um, and just reminding us that we're like connected to something larger, um, especially in today's world where we have so many distractions and things going on with social media and all that stuff um, being in nature can really like ground us and bring us back down and give us a sense of wholeness and calm um, that can be otherwise hard to find why one person is different from other and why conflict mm. yeah so um Every person is unique, right? So all people are different in many, many ways. And some of our traits we're, we're born with, um, they're just like our kind of natural way that we're born. And then some are influenced over time. Um, and especially in our early childhood, those experiences when we're really young can really influence those differences. Um, and that's what can make people different. And so a lot of, to answer your question about conflict, this will connect to it. We develop an attachment style based on our early experiences and relationships. And there's four main ones that we talk about, which are anxiously attached, um, avoidantly attached, disorganized attachment, which is kind of a mixture of both, um, and then secure attachment. And so, for example, somebody who grew up in a household where maybe um, 
their parents weren't really there for them emotionally. Like they might have provided for them and given them a home and um, the things that they needed, the basics to survive, but they weren't really there for their child in an emotional capacity or didn't allow their child to express emotions. Um, and maybe there were times where they themselves um, avoided dealing with emotions. When we have uh, experience like that when we're younger, that influences then the way that we're going to connect to others. And so uh, when you develop an anxious attachment style, that means that you are really afraid that you're going to be abandoned, um, that someone's going to leave you, and you might do all these things to try to like hold on to the relationship and keep it keep it going. Whereas an avoidant person is super scared of emotion. Maybe that person who grew up in the household where like emotion wasn't really accepted, um, they might avoid it at all costs because they're afraid of getting hurt. So they also they have the same underlying fears, but they express them in different ways. Um, and in particular, anxious and avoidant people are known to attract one another. And so they have these two completely opposing styles, which can lead to conflict. And so really the goal is to try to get most people to a place where they feel securely attached. Um, just because you grow up one way or you have one style doesn't mean it'll be that way forever. You can change it. There's plenty you can do to like fix your attachment style. Um, but conflict arises because of those differences in, in our needs and relationships and like what we need to feel safe and secure. And when two people have very different styles, they're just going to be constantly kind of missing each other and letting each other down, um, usually unintentionally. Like we're not usually aware of these things, but that's kind of where a lot of conflict can arise from. So how food, climate, uh, environment and the place they live uh, impacts uh, their psychology? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so, um, I can definitely speak more to what I know of in the U.S. right now. I would love to hear some time about um, your experiences and how the mental health world looks um, for you. But I think that so we talk about being born into systems, right? And where you grew up can hugely impact your psychology. So someone who is born um, white, first of all, they have a privilege, right? They have this privilege because they are not going to be condoned or looked down upon for the color of their skin or for their ethnic background or anything like that. And so people in our country who face incidences of like systemic racism and um, experiences every day that are really hurtful, that of course, is going to wear on you and your well-being over time. And so just being born into this society where we treat people differently still based on the color of their skin and based on those types of factors, that right away um, can have a negative impact on someone because they're in this world where they feel like they're not necessarily welcome. Um, and they're seeing, especially on the media, constantly things that are happening to people who look like them. And it's really scary and it can be traumatizing to watch that. 
And then also like on a smaller scale where you grow up can really impact your health as well. So if you're in more of like a middle class, like safe neighborhood um, or a wealthy neighborhood where you probably have good access to a quality education, there's resources available, your family can get you help if you need help that's to your benefit, right? Like you're, you're going to be in a better space than someone who is born in a neighborhood with like high incidences of community violence. Um, they don't have as good of educational systems. They have less access to resources. And so they can't receive the same like quality of care as other people. And that can really negatively impact someone's health too. I hope that answered your question. Is it too bad to be too curious? Oh, <laughs> um, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to be too curious, but I think that where we want to be careful is we don't want to let our thoughts um, run our lives and get away from us. And so, uh, you know, in, in psychology, we talk a lot about how your thoughts really do change the way that you experience and perceive the world. And sometimes, you know, if we're too curious, we might tend to think a little bit too much about things and get kind of caught in this like negative cycle um, because we're thinking too much and we're really like trapped in our thoughts. Um, but curiosity can also be a wonderful skill to have because it can push you to want to learn more. Like as a researcher, I have curiosities right in the field about things that I want to know about and things that we still don't know that we're trying to find out. And so it can definitely help you in a lot of ways. It's just, um, not letting it run your life or get too out of hand. So why uh, thoughts and emotions and feelings don't have a physical form? Cool. You know, it would be really cool if they did because I think it would make it a lot easier for us to deal with them. Um, but basically our, our thoughts are, I, I think of them as like the voice inside your head. So it's, it's this constant kind of nagging voice that is narrating every single thing that we do each day. And it's really not necessary, but it, it does it. That's just what all of our brains do. Uh, we have thousands and thousands of thoughts every single day. Some of them we are aware of, meaning they're conscious and some we're not aware of. So they're unconscious, but they're still kind of playing in the back of our mind. And then that influences our emotions and our feelings. And um, we can't see them necessarily, but we can we can feel them and we know that they're there. And one thing I teach people actually is to externalize that voice in their head and literally picture themselves like talking to themselves outside of themselves. So like if someone is having a thought like, oh, like I'm, I'm such a loser, like no one likes me. I tell them like picture yourself standing next to you right now saying that to you. And it kind of helps you separate yourself from the thought because you can see how like untrue it might be and how silly it might be. Um, so you're giving it like a physical form so that you can kind of tackle it in a different way. And with feelings, um, even though we can't physically see them, we can physically feel them in our bodies. And oftentimes we're not good at doing that. We're not super connected to our bodies. And so um, 
I often have people like I give them like a shape of a body and I have them color in with different colors, like where in their body they feel anxiety, where they feel depression, where they feel happiness, where they feel joy. Um, and to really get in tune with that and to know like where, you know, like, oh, when I feel tightness in my chest, it probably means like I'm feeling anxious. And then they can start to make the connections between those feelings and that voice in their head that's telling them something. Uh, why do these emotions uh, needs a physical body and uh, metabolism to it? Why do they um, affect the physical body? Uh, why do these emotions and feelings needs a physical body and uh, and physical body needs a me metabolism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I think I think it speaks to, like I said, this connection between our mental and physical health that we're starting to really realize and that our bodies often know what we're struggling with before our minds even catch up and know it. And so we can have symptoms of things happening physically for us before we even mentally know what's going on. And until we start to create that awareness, we might not really make those connections. Um, but I see this quite often with kids in particular. You know, they're not going to school because they're complaining like of a stomach ache or their head hurts, they don't feel good. That's anxiety, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it is. Um, and so when we can make the connections between what's happening in our physical body and what's been going on with our thoughts, we can really start to understand how to calm our physical bodies down. And that will also in turn influence our thoughts and vice versa. Um, so I think it just, it really shows how deeply interconnected physical and mental health really are. Uh, is it possible to be, uh, is it possible for a human to be controlled all his life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, Sadly, I think the answer to that question could be yes. Um, it's unfortunately, you know, people, especially people who might experience a trauma or grow up in a way where they're dealing with relationships that are very abusive, um, that can over time really influence your brain, especially if it started in childhood, because our childhood wounds are the ones that stick with us for the longest. And like I said, we're not always aware of them. Um, so it can take a long time to bring them to the surface. And so people who grow up with someone who's maybe abusive, um, if they never are able to break out of that pattern and heal from it, they're likely going to continue to be in relationships with people who are also abusers, um, or they might eventually like um, perpetuate the cycle of violence and be an abuser themselves. Um, and so unfortunately, like when we don't have awareness of these things and we don't um, have the capacity to heal them, it can really negatively impact our brain and lead our lead our brains to be kind of controlled by these things that are going on that we aren't aware of. So people in which profession are uh, easy to handle? Are what? People in which profession are easy to handle? Easy to handle. 
easy to communicate easy to talk mm. um i think honestly i think that it it really just depends on the person like there's there are some professions um where people who you know like for example like things that you do with interviewing and stuff like obviously you have this skill where you're able to really connect with people from all different backgrounds and from all different parts of the world which is incredible like not everybody has that skill right and so that makes you someone who's very easy to connect with and talk to um but there can also be people in fields that you wouldn't really expect that also have that skill and so i think it just really depends on the person but i think the easiest people to connect with are people who are good and active listeners um meaning that they truly like sit and they take in what you're saying and um they think about it and they respond in a manner that shows like they're they're really taking in your words um and that they can be empathetic and attuned to like what you're going through and what your feelings are um I think those are the people that I feel are easiest to really connect to and communicate with. Uh, what is making people from different parts of the world connect with each other? Hmm. Yeah, I think I think social media is both a blessing and a curse at times. Um, it's wonderful because it does allow us to connect from all different parts of the world, which is is so cool. And I think it it builds empathy and understanding because otherwise you know where you're born if you don't ever leave there you know nothing else you don't know about other cultures other places um other people's experiences and so social media has really given us this opportunity to connect with people without having to go anywhere without even having to leave our own homes um and to connect with people from all walks of life and so i think that's really brought people together in a unique way and allowed people to connect and find common interests and learn more about each other so if this if this video is found anywhere in any data center after 100 years if somebody is watching and listening to you do you have anything specific to tell them that will help them to do their research oh that's a really good question <laughs> um i would say i think like the biggest piece of advice um or biggest lesson i've learned in being in a PhD program and also just like being a human and living in this world is that um we awareness of the things that we need to deal with is progress um so simply being aware and starting to become more in tune with our thoughts and what's going on in our minds really can start to shift us and then remembering that you know we don't have to do things all right away or solve our problems immediately we can take tiny steps each day and if we do that you know the small steps we take each day if you're taking them every day they're really going to build up and lead to big changes over time versus if we try to do things all at once and take it all in at once and take big steps we're probably going to get super overwhelmed and it's going to feel really hard and so i would say just like doing something small each day to better yourself or to move towards your goal um 
and not worrying too much about like the outcome or how you'll get there, but really enjoying the process and being kind to yourself along the way. Um, Cause usually we're our own harshest self critics and that voice in our head can get really, really nasty. Um, and so taking the time to really give ourselves kindness and um, forgiveness and compassion. So I came to know that uh, 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 genes in a human being transfers uh, to the generations and uh, the, memory, the memory will be transferred and it will be there until uh, for a long time. So in the same way, the psychology of a human being is that also transfers for like next generations. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we actually talk a lot um, about something called generational trauma. And so if our ancestors have experienced something that actually really can be coded into our genes and passed down to us, um, and that's particularly true for people who have been oppressed or um, stigmatized or um, excluded from society in some way. Um, so the, an example of this that I could share would maybe be like, for example, with the Holocaust, people who survived the Holocaust, it's likely, and we don't have all the research answers on this yet, um, but it's likely that that was, that experience was encoded in their genes. And so that will be passed down to other generations. Um, and there are ways that we can work through that and work with families to kind of think about like what are some of the long-term things in your history that could be impacting you. Um, just because some things in our genes doesn't mean that life has to be really hard for us or that we can't overcome it. It just means that we had these experiences in life that led our body to adapt in certain ways. So what happens if an Indian and uh, American gets married uh, loving each other? What happens if, what was that? Uh, what happens if uh, an Indian and an American loves each other and gets married? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, what do you mean by that? Uh, because uh, they belong to different countries, different cultures, they came mm. from different backgrounds. Uh, how that connection and relationship and the connectivity between them is going to be according to your experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that um, absolutely like that can totally be successful. And um, there's no reason that two people from different backgrounds, different areas of the world can't have a great relationship. I think that it just sometimes poses barriers, um, especially if we're not open to learning about the other person's culture and their way of doing things and their values and their family. Um, and so really just making sure that, you know, when you're dating someone or in a relationship that you're talking about those things, talking about like your values, your spiritual beliefs, your financial beliefs, everything, like kind of putting it all out there and seeing if you can find common ground. Um, and I know for a lot of people too, sometimes when you're dating someone from another culture, 
there can be pressure from the family um, if the family wants you to be marrying within your own culture. And so finding ways, you know, if, if you find someone you love and they are in a different culture, finding ways to bring them into your family in a meaningful way and help them understand each other. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, I want to. So you study uh, uh, psychology from different human beings. So what is your psychology? Do you mean like what kind of psychology that I practice or what do you mean by that? Uh, collecting information from different resources and talking with different people, knowing what is what they are experiencing, what you are becoming. Yeah, I think I think that's changed a lot for me um, in the past few years. I think that's one of the the benefits of doing school for so long is you you learn a lot and you know like you said I'm studying and meeting different people and doing these different experiences and so I feel like I'm always evolving and changing and I would say that I really um, have become much more um, human-centered and holistically based. And by that, I mean that, you know, there is this notion that as as therapists, we're supposed to be just kind of this blank person to um, help people push people in the right direction and that we can't really share much of ourselves or we can't really be directive. And I think I've discovered, like, I don't always agree with that. And I think sometimes, like, in order for someone to be vulnerable with you, you need to be vulnerable with them and be willing to share some of yourself and bring yourself into the room and into the experience. And so I've just, I think, I've tried to become a lot more honest and authentic and transparent with people, especially kids. Like, kids can, they can read anyone. They're very intuitive. Um they usually know what's going on before adults even do. And so, you know, if you're trying to be a blank slate and trying to do things kind of by the book, it can feel really limiting. And so just like making really meaningful connections with people and trying to share myself in ways that are appropriate and that would be helpful, um, I think that's kind of what I'm growing towards and trying to keep working on and expanding. Do you think do you think uh, there is psychology beyond uh, human understanding? Oh yes, yeah, that's a great question. I I absolutely do. Um, like I mentioned, I'm really into yoga and in learning more about kind of where yoga came from and some of the ancient traditions and teachings. Um, I think there's so so much in our universe that we just don't know, and as humans, don't have the capacity to fathom. Um, there's so, so much out there that we still don't know the answers to. Like the field of psychology even is still so new. It's going to grow exponentially um, in the coming years. And so there's definitely things that we we don't know. And there's some things that, you know, no matter how much we study, we might never understand or have answers to. And I think that's just, you know, humans are, we want to know the answers to things. We, we're always trying to find these things out. Um, but sometimes life is just like living with the fact that like, we might not know and that's okay. Uh, at last, uh, what you understood about my psychology? Oh, 
I love that. Um, I would say I think that like I said, you're, you have this special ability to connect with people and you're very insightful, um, in watching like some of your interviews, the questions that you think of to ask people and the ways that you kind of dig into people's careers and what they're doing with their lives and how they got to where they are. It's really fascinating. And I think, you know, being an interviewer is a hard skill. I don't think a lot of people realize that, but, um, I found that like that's been one of my growth areas in psychology. It can be really hard and it's really hard to listen to people and to pull information and make people feel comfortable enough to answer and ask questions. And so I think like you're very um, insightful, empathetic, communicative, you're kind, you're very warm, like you have a very warm presence, like you make people feel safe. Um, And so I think that that's that's a skill that can't be taught. That's just a natural ability and it's a gift. It really is. So I'm so glad that you're you're doing this work. I think your channel is absolutely amazing. And and what do you think that is working for me in order to connect with all the country people? Hmm. I mean, I think it would just be your openness and willingness like to ask like I think um that people people really like to share like what they're doing and what's going on in their lives and you know it's not always often that we're asked especially in depth about these things and you know um like for me like psychology like I can nerd out on psychology all day I could talk about it forever um and I'm sure other people in their own unique fields feel the same and so you're um willingness and openness to like have these conversations and connect with people and just learn more about that I think it makes people feel good and feel happy and excited that they get to share like the things that they've worked so hard for so do you want me to share your web links with my audience that would be amazing yeah I would love that I'll put on the screen. Can you spell it? Uh, can you can you spell your uh, online presence to my podcast business? Yeah. Do you want me to chat it to you or to just um, say it out loud? Can Can you spell it? Yeah. So it's at the t h e period helpful h e a l t h f u l period healer h e a l e r. Can I put this video on my YouTube channel with your permission? Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Can I also put this audio and video clip on my social media, internet, social, uh, 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 everywhere with your permission? Yes, you definitely can. So thank you, Amanda, for giving me your valuable time and giving answers to so many of my questions and uh, uh, telling about yourself to my audience. Yeah, thank you so much, Sai, for having me. I really appreciate it. And I think it's pretty late where you are, so I'm so sorry. <laughs> I feel so bad, um, but I hope you get to get some good sleep and stuff. <laughs> it's, okay. it's a valuable time. Uh, keep going and keep helping and uh, give great service to the planet. Yeah, you too. You're You're doing the same thing, so I really appreciate you, and thank you so much for having me. Take care. Okay, bye.